Welcome back to the program. In the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley, Tom Ripley, played by Matt Damon, says that I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. This insecurity, this lack of confidence in who we are, is such a critical part of life that it has been immortalized repeatedly in movies and literature. But beyond that, it has real consequences that go beyond art and the definitions in the DMS. For women in particular, the lack of confidence and yes, even our confidence genes drive relationships, families, and the workplace in ways that create a kind of confidence feedback loop where lack of confidence produces fear that produces further lack of confidence. And while the issue is clearly an important one for women, we all pay part of the price. This is why it's valuable that our guests, Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman, look at the issue of confidence in their new book, The Confidence Code. Caddy Kay is the Washington, D.C. anchor for BBC World News America. She's a regular guest on NBC's Meet the Press and Morning Joe. Claire Shipman is correspondent for ABC News and Good Morning America, covering politics, international affairs, and women's issues. It is my pleasure to welcome Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman back to this program to talk about the confidence code, the science and art of self-assurance, what women should know. Caddy, Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. Great to have you here. I want to talk first of all, Claire, start with you, how this look at confidence grew out of the work that the two of you had done in your previous book, Womenomics. Well, you know, in Womenomics, we were really looking at uh, the economic success in many ways that women are experiencing in the workplace and how women want to work differently and what we're all learning about the way women contribute to the bottom line of companies now that makes us more powerful. But what really struck us is we, I think we write about it in the book as a, a dark spot that we identify that we would, we would hear stories from the most successful women who might say, well, I'm not really sure I'm ready for this promotion or an engineer in Detroit who would say, you know, I'm not sure I want to go for that next job. And I think, what is this about? I mean, the two of us for years had compared notes on, you know, maybe not always feeling as confident as we might but we started to dig around to see whether there was more here than just anecdotal evidence about a confidence gap. And, and really, when we got into the numbers, we didn't really expect to find numbers, but we, we found them in a, in a variety of ways. It's startling. I think one of the, the most interesting for us is, um, is this, uh, this Hewlett-Packard study that was done that has since been replicated. And Hewlett-Packard essentially found that women will apply for promotions when they feel they have roughly... 100% of the qualifications for a job, whereas men will happily apply when they feel they have 60% of the qualifications. And you can imagine over the course of a career what that sort of self-editing means. And, Caddy, one of the areas that there is the assumption that this may grow out of, exactly what Claire's talking about, is the world of sports and how men and boys deal with that world and what it sets them up for going forward. Yeah, it's so interesting because we we discovered that there's this confidence gap. And then, of course, the question is why? Well, really, there are two questions. One is why, and the second question is, okay, so how do we close it? But the why question is very interesting. And part of the reason there's a confidence gap between men and women, part of it's genetics, part of it's the way we're raised, and part of it is sports, that young men and young women now are playing a lot of women since Title IX have really picked up in schools, in middle school and in high school, the number of sports that they play, but they're still not matching the boys, and they are dropping out of sports in high school, competitive team sports, at a rate six times faster than boys are. 
And what does sports give a kid? Sports teaches a child to win, obviously, but just as importantly, it teaches them how to lose. It teaches those kids out on the sports field that they make a bad play and they have to pick themselves up and carry on for the team. They can't let that one single shot on goal that they miss deter them from participating in the game further. They can't let, when their team loses, they've got to be there the next day for practice and the next Saturday for another match. And it's that, I think it's that kind of rough and tumble experience of competitive team sports that is so great for kids. And boys are benefiting from that. And girls, unfortunately, just aren't getting quite that level of benefit. One of the mistakes we make in this discussion, Claire, is that we confuse and conflate self-esteem with confidence. And in many ways, much of the self-esteem we've been pouring on girls for so long may in some way be contributing to, to part of where the problem is. You know, that's a really good point. So first of all, just teasing out the definition of confidence wasn't easy. We went around and around with lots of experts. But you're right. You know, self-esteem is really about, I have value in the world. I'm a valuable person. Um, confidence is much more about action and, and achieving your, your, your belief in your ability to achieve certain things. One fantastic psychologist, uh, Dr. Richard Petty of Ohio State, put it this way too, it's confidence is the stuff that turns thoughts into action. But what the self-esteem movement has done, and, and it's really to the detriment of boys and girls, is it's really going to focus on you can do anything you want, just telling people that all the time, but not letting them learn it and learn from experience that they're going to be able to do anything they want. And guess what? That actually doesn't build confidence. So in a way, you've got this whole generation of kids, who, they're out in the workplace and they think they ought to be able to do anything they want, but what they're finding is they actually don't have the confidence that they can achieve very specific things. And, and you're right that there may have been more of a push with girls because everybody's been so focused on, you know, let's let girls know that, you know, they really can be president or senator or an astronaut too if they want to. And where it gets more confusing is that girls are having success as this self-confidence, this self-esteem is poured into them. They're having success in grade school and middle school and high school and even on to college, as we're seeing. But that doesn't always apply to the real world, as, as Carol Dweck talked to you about, Caddy. Yeah, I think as we approach graduation season, we should really be giving this lesson to our girls. I have a girl who's a daughter who's 18. She's about to graduate from high school. She's going to enter college. And then, of course, there's almost a million women who are now about to graduate from college. And they've been superstars. They've been at the top of their class. Women are doing so much better than young men in schools at the moment. We're getting more degrees. We're getting more postgraduate degrees. We're even getting more PhDs. And then something happens. We enter the world of professional life, and the rules change, and we don't play so well. And it was Carol Dweck, as you mentioned there, the author of Mindset, who said to us, if life were long, one long grade school, women would rule the world. But it's not. And in school, women play really well. We are very good at being perfect, getting everything right, playing by the rules, coloring within the lines, being respectful, waiting our turn in class before we answer the question, having the answer perfectly formulated before we raise our hand in class. All of those things play naturally to women's strengths. We do super well. And then we get into the cubicle and the professional space, and it's much more political and 
you have to be able to promote yourself. You've got to be able to go for things. When you're not perfectly prepared, you've got to be able to send in that report that is not immaculately finished. You've got to be able to go for those jobs and those promotions which you might not have all the skills for. And I think that is that is what we want to help women, young women in particular, learn with the confidence code. And one of the things that you point out, Kelly, is this idea that, that in order to build confidence, one of the things it requires most of all is moving out of one's comfort zone. Yes. You, I, I'm a TV anchor. I can read the news every night to millions of people around the world. I'm confident that I can do that. I'm not confident that I'd be a good businesswoman. But I will never know whether I can be an entrepreneur. I will never build that skill. I will never have a chance to learn that and to build my confidence in that unless I try it. It would be really hard for me. It would test my confidence to do it. But the only way I'm going to get the confidence of doing it is by trying it. And you can, you can replicate that a lot. Small things. You want to introduce yourself to that stranger who's on the other side of the room at the party. You want to go to the business reception by yourself. The kind you want to give a toast at your best friend's birthday. It's not the big things, it's the little things that test our confidence. And the way we get confident is by trying those things. But the other side of that, Claire, are, are these tapes, the thoughts that run inside our heads that women in particular. <laughs> have to deal with, and this goes back to this idea that you talked about before, of the professor at Ohio State talking about turning thoughts into actions and the extent to which those thoughts become muddled by, by negativity. Oh, you're so right, and I think this is something that women we've found are really identify with, this tendency to ruminate and to just focus on negative thoughts, and sometimes they, they spiral out of control, and it really does inhibit action. It inhibits confident thought when you're just dwelling on the negative. It's been really interesting because, you know, we did look at some of the, when we were looking at origins of confidence, we just find that there's some really interesting evidence now about differences in the way male and female brains work. And they're really even seeing by virtue of scans and other tests that are complicated, uh, that there's, there's some evidence that women work more out of a worry work center of our brain, for example, that's what has been dubbed, or that there's more activity going on in our brain, more neurons firing at any given time. But we all know what that feels like, right? The rumination. And that is something that is, is critical to stop. We talked to one neuroscientist, fantastically brilliant, Laura Ann Petito, who has a lab here at Gallaudet University. And she said she would routinely head home every day on the bus thinking of the 10 things she had done wrong. <laughs> and she realized after a while that this was just ridiculous and really destructive behavior. And now what she does is she's created something called the three-to-one rule, which is for every negative thought she has, she counters it with three, even positive or, or neutral thoughts that really take the power out of it. And, and we've tried it too. It's really classic cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. You just, you, you have a thought of, what, why isn't Diane Sawyer emailing me back? You just, <laughs> Counter it, counter it with maybe she's busy before you spin out of control into all the other <laughs> scenarios. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we we have cracked this code totally. We still do it, and we've written a book on this subject. The other day, I was filling in for Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe and hosting the program, and the governor of Iowa came on at like six in the morning, and I asked him a dumb question. And six o'clock that evening and six o'clock the next evening and six o'clock the next evening, I was still thinking about that one question. I 
the fact that I'd hosted three great hours of television and achieved a whole load of other things during the course of my day, that I discounted. But that one <laughs> question still bugs me today. And, and she's telling the truth. I've heard about that question. <laughs> <laughs> There's also an aspect of it that goes beyond the neurological that is also biochemical, and that there's a genetic element at play as well. We, we got very fascinated by what confidence is and where it comes from, because it seems that we all look around us and we see these people who seem to glide through life, who just seem to do things with ease, and who seem more confident. Well, guess what? They may well be naturally more confident because we were surprised to learn, weren't we, Claire, that something like 25 to 50% of confidence is actually genetic. Yeah, we, we really, this is one of our more interesting trips. We went and spent time with um, uh, a, a really interesting animal behavioralist, Steve Suomi, at the, um, at the NIH at a lab, and he works with monkeys. And he's been studying um, behavior in monkeys for decades. And he started to realize at a certain point, especially looking at anxious monkeys, which is, of course, the flip side of confident monkeys, um, that, that there really is a genetic component. And he and other people have since sort of come up with pieces to this puzzle, what we call a confidence cocktail of some genes that really do affect confidence. Um, and Katty and I got so intrigued by this that we did our own DNA test because they do tests for these now, some, some of these companies. And um we found out that we are not naturally genetically confident <laughs> people. So that was a little bit dismaying, but at the same time, it really uh, it, it answers the other question, which is, you know, how much of confidence is something we have control over? And it turns out that, you know, at least half of our confidence is something that we can either build ourselves or that our environment contributes. Talk a little bit about the environment, because regardless of, of the genetics, and certainly that clearly is a part of it, the thing that feeds into that are the stereotypes and societal expectations that surround that, Claire. Well, there's no question that, um, that you know, we are in no way saying in this book, hey, everything would be fantastic if women could just be a little more confident. Everything would be even. Because the playing field isn't level. A society was very much, especially the workplace, was created by men and has standards that are more comfortable for men in many ways. And something known as stereotype threat is still very much an issue for women and minorities, essentially that when you are in the minority and there's a certain stereotype about the performance of that minority, it really inhibits your performance and your confidence. And that, that's just a reality. I mean, sitting around a table at a meeting and being the only woman or one of two women, it just doesn't do much for your confidence. Um, you know, and, and, and so that is very much a reality. But but we also think, again, just as significant as what we were talking about earlier, the way we may be, without even knowing it, also putting this added burden of perfectionism on our girls and encouraging something that really we, we think we're doing them a favor, but we're not. So in effect, it's a double whammy that we're, we're handing them as they're ready to graduate. The other part of it is that when confronting those crises of confidence, who do women talk to? Are they better off talking to mentors, to other women? Can they talk to men about this? And can there be a dialogue about this that's effective for everybody? Caddy? We've been really surprised by the number of men who have responded to this book, to the Confidence Code. And so many of them who have called into radio stations or who have come up to us at book signings and said, you know what, I see this. 
I see this all the time in my daughters and in my wife and in my colleagues. And I wish that I could change it. I wish that I could help. What can I do to help? We, we're really struck by the response from men. We're also struck by the response from men who say to us, listen, I feel unconfident too sometimes. Men have insecurity as well. And I think the, the difference in the way that men and women's insecurity seems to manifest itself is that men don't seem to let their nerves stop them from taking action as often as women do. So a woman will feel nervous and insecure and won't go for that next promotion or won't go for that big job or take on that client account or raise her hand in the meeting, the man will feel nervous but will still raise his hand in the meeting. And I think that's a very a, a, a fundamental kind of difference. I, I think in terms of talking to our friends and our mentees and our other women around us, it is critical that we talk about this, but maybe in a slightly different way than we have done in the past. Women are great at friendships. We are great at telling each other how wonderful they are supporting each other is an incredibly valuable thing that women have. But sometimes, you know what, you actually need to give your friend or your colleague a bit of a nut. Try the hard thing. Do the thing that's difficult. Don't stay in your comfort zone. Stop thinking about the criticism. Stop ruminating. And a nudge can be as more effective often than you're wonderful and you're perfect. Claire, talk a little bit about this imposter feeling. We see it in particular, and a lot's been written about it, with respect to a lot of people in the arts, in, in various aspects of film and television and literature and theater, this sense of feeling the imposter, what is the nexus between that and some of these confidence issues we've been talking about? Well, there, there's a, that's very directly related. I think that the, the imposter syndrome or feeling like a fraud is something that women, various especially, um, seem to relate to. And this, the notion of this has been around for quite some time imposter syndrome, the idea that you you don't really deserve to be where you are, that somehow it was fate or chance or luck that got you where you are and that you know within minutes you might be uncovered and booted out of your career, essentially. And, um, and, and we found that, you know, again, so many women we talk to have these, these kinds of feelings. But it was really interesting. We got a, a slightly different take on it from a... Um, a, a really smart w- woman at, at Wellesley who runs, helps to run the women's program there, who said, Peggy McIntosh, who said that in part, of course, for women, feeling like a fraud is not unnatural because in a way, in a, in a work world that's created with standards that were made by men, we are to some extent fraudulent because we're not always valued for the things that we would find valuable, and we are often ha- having to adopt behavior that doesn't feel as comfortable to us as it could. And so, Cher, I thought that was a very interesting take on this. And I, and I think that's, that, that gets to the nub of a, a point that has come up for, for me and Caddy in a lot of speeches we've given recently, which is, okay... You know, it, it, we, we talk about in the book this idea of authenticity and that for women, authenticity is going to be very important to the kind of confidence we display. That it doesn't have to look like male confidence or bravado or speaking up loudest at first. It can, it can come in different ways, but then a lot of people say, but what about the workplace? Today? What if our bosses are, you know, who are of a, of a generation that say, no, this is the way behavior should be. And I think women, women are walking a tightrope right now. I think it's changing and it's changing fast. But there's no question that for the time being, we really have to operate to some extent like chameleons and trying to, 
to, to navigate all of this. And, Caddy, the flip side of that is kind of the extent to which mastery becomes important. You were talking about it before with regard to doing the news every night and this sense of, you know, the proverbial 10,000 hours and the value of that mastery in building that confidence. Being two women, we sort of thought, wow, this sounds very masculine, and it also sounds very perfectionist, which we didn't like the idea of either, you know, this is, these are two things that women kind of perhaps have to avoid as they build their confidence. But actually, mastery is really about being able to give something a go, work at it, encounter hurdles, keep going, and realize that you have built something. And it doesn't really matter what you're building. It's whether you're learning to swim, you're never perhaps going to be an Olympic swimmer, but you'll learn to swim across the lake. So you will have achieved something. And I think, again, for our kids, this is so important. We have one woman in the book, a friend of ours called Jane, who just came up with this great idea of getting your kids to master little things, change a light bulb, sew a hem, fry an egg, take the bus. Exactly the same for women. Keep going at something. Try something that's difficult. Keep going at it. Encounter the hurdles. I think that's so important. And sometimes fail. Be prepared sometimes to fail and realize that when you do fail, you're still standing. You're still there. What's the worst that can happen with failure? And I think that's a really critical lesson because we always want to be, guess what, perfect. But if we don't fail, we're not trying the hard things. We're not risking difficult things. And Claire, that goes to, again, coming back to Carol Dweck and this idea of the growth mindset. And really, that's pretty critical in this. It's really critical, and especially critical for women. I mean, she, Carol Dweck points out that women are, are much more likely not to necessarily naturally have a growth mindset. And, for example, in, in a, a couple of psychologists have said to us, in, in, in it, things like math classes, for example, they find that women are much more likely to say, if they do badly on a math exam, look, I'm just bad at math. Whereas men are much more likely to say, oh, I, I just didn't study. And so the idea that you can acquire knowledge and you can acquire mastery and skill is critical. And what, what I find so beautiful about all of this is, for, for especially for our kids, is that it's transferable. It, it really doesn't matter what your child masters because the, the, the ability to master and, and the experience of mastering something sticks with them and they will use it again and again, whether they're mastering the violin or piano. You know, we all get so anguished these days as parents. You know, what's the perfect thing? What should they study? What should they do? It doesn't matter. Just let them master something and they will use that experience to their benefit as they move through life. One of the other things that has come up in so many conversations about women's goals today, and it certainly came out of Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, this idea of the degree to which all of this discussion crosses economic lines. Caddy? I think this is what we're trying to do with building data at the moment. We have up on our website, and you should take it, it's a great resource, a confidence assessment that we've built up with the help of two top psychologists in the country. And we're really trying to drill down into this, into which, to the extent to which confidence is affected by your income, your status in life, your, your gender, of course, your ethnicity, whether there's a regional difference. We're really trying to get granular with what confidence is and, and whether the more you have, the more confident you feel, or whether some people with limited resources and limited means still have that sense 
that they are able to succeed. Let, let, give, I'll give you an example of somebody who you'd think shouldn't have confidence. Malala Yousafzai, I'm sure many of your audience mm-hmm. members have heard of her, the young girl in Pakistan living in a small village. Her parents were very poor. She wanted to get an education. She kept getting threatened by the Taliban. She took them on. She refused to give up. She believed she could succeed. Now, there is nothing in her background that suggested privilege. But she had, who knows where it came from. She had a from her parents, from her genes. She had a belief that she could succeed, and she kept going. In, in the face of the most incredible hurdles, she kept going, and she has succeeded. And I think that's what Malala has. She has courage, certainly. She has confidence. It's so important for us to, to say that we don't think confidence is only something to be wielded in the workplace. For us, we, we came to see it as an essential ingredient for life. I mean, it's really something that lets you move, as one Buddhist expert told us, wholeheartedly toward whatever it is you're doing, a kind of energy that is just fantastic for women to be able to experience. Caddy Kay, Claire Shipman. The book is The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. Caddy, Claire, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, Great. Thanks for having us. Great conversation. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 